Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is the 26th of May, 2020. I hope everyone is safe and well, wherever you are listening to this podcast from. I know a lot of you have been largely confined to your houses for many weeks now, but it seems like there is a little light at the end of the tunnel as some of the lockdowns are beginning to lift. To this week's show, and oh my... What an amazing conversation. I chat with filmmaker Ryan Youngblood as we journey through just a little bit of his life and career, from hunting and conservation in the Central African Republic to working in India, Nepal, Tanzania, Democratic Republic of Congo, to dodging bullets and bombs in Iraq, you will be left in awe of what this guy has done. You will also hear me talk for the very first time about an elephant charge last year, and we both discuss the moral conflict of documentary filmmaking and the consideration of risk and our very own mortality. It gets deep. Before we jump in, a big shout out to our top tier Patreon supporters, which this week includes Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Josh Starling, Sean Rowan, James Alvin Corbin, and Thomas Cameron. And of course, thank you to all of our other supporters as well. If you would like to support the show, we have a list of options on patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers, or you can just head over and rate and review the show. That also makes a massive difference. We have a winner from two weeks ago where we gave you all a chance to win a copy of any volume you liked of Modern Huntsman. I just asked you to share this podcast somewhere on social media. Doug McAdam gave the show a share on Twitter, and you are the lucky winner. So congratulations, contact us, and I will get uh, whichever volume you want out to you as soon as possible. As many of you will know, Modern Huntsmen are our partners on the podcast, and they help make these shows possible. And as a thank you to all of you guys for listening, we run these competitions. So for this week, it's going to be one that is purely on Instagram. Sorry that that excludes non-Instagram users, but two weeks' time, we'll have a different competition. Either go and like uh, the page at Byron J. Pace or tag me in something that you post about this week's podcast and I will pick a winner at random in two weeks' time. If you are trying to find me on the other platforms, I'm also at Byron J. Pace on Twitter and if you want to use Facebook instead, it is Pace Brothers Film is the page that we use there. If you want to see any of the links for anything mentioned in this show, Find the episode on thepacebrothers.com where there'll be a lot more detail than I can put in the show notes on whatever platform you listen to this on. If you want to check out Modern Huntsman, go to modernhuntsman.com where you can also order any of the issues along with some very cool merch that went up a couple of weeks ago. Lastly, Northern Shooting Show dates are still set for the 28th and 29th of August 2020 in the Yorkshire Event Centre in the UK. Visit northernshootingshow.co.uk for more details. And with all of that said, I welcome Ryan Youngblood. Ryan, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Awesome to have you on today. 
you and I, well, I was going to say you and I first met, but we've actually never met. But I first became aware of you and your work because of an article that was published in Modern Huntsman was just imagery that took my breath away and an article that got into a depth of what goes on in Central Africa that I had rarely read. Uh, and it was a locations that I was going to quite soon after that that article came out. So it, it meant a lot to me and gave me a great insight into the places I was going to be traveling, having spent a lot of time in Africa, but not necessarily uh, in, in Central Africa. Uh, maybe that's a, a good place to start. Is How did that come about, uh, your um, your contribution to, to the volume? I think it was volume two, Modern Huntsman? Uh, correct, yeah. Yeah, it was volume two. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that was 2014 um, in the Central African Republic. And uh, I believe it was around February. I mean, and this is like a year after the uh, the Central African Republic or the CAR had been kind of in knee deep in the civil war. And, um, and, uh, and I weirdly was finding myself going there and really it was all stemmed from, I just wanted to go hunt in Africa, which has had kind of been this sort of, you know, um, wild dream of mine. And even probably part of the dream that took me to Africa, I guess, like, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, I was living in Uganda at the time. This was in the fall of 2013. I had a buddy, who, uh, who was also a fellow hunter and a photographer. And I was just, you know, chewing the fat to say like, Hey, you know, do you know of any, any places where, uh, where we could hunt in Africa, like a, you know, a more of a connection rather than like, let's go through some really expensive safari company or something. And it was CAR, um, that had like, ironically the, the easiest lead to, uh, to go hunt. And, um, and so he had a connection with a guy who had a hunting company out there that was also uh, starting its own conservation component to it. And uh, kind of in the middle, or not really in the middle, really in the beginning of sort of that, um, you know, that real uh, awareness of like the hunting and conservation um, marriage that has always existed, but really has become more, I guess, mainstream and understandable over the past maybe, you know, five to 10 years. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so I connected with this Swedish guy who grew up in the CAR quite literally grew up out in the bush and, uh, grew up like hanging on his dad's back as they went elephant hunting and had never left and, uh, opened up his own safari company. And so I contacted him and said, look, I, is, can we like do a trade, which is also kind of the beauty of, of my work. You can kind of or our work, you can, you know, uh, it's not always about monetary, you know, uh, trade, there's some bartering involved. And so I was like, Hey, is there any chance that I could come do some work for you guys in exchange for hunting? And he was keen on it. And so that's what took me there initially. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, if we were only interested in money, I think we would probably all do something else. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have quit my job in 2008 when the financial crisis hit in America to pursue, you know, uh, this not so, um, you know, uh, money filled photography career. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, I would, I want to pick up on CAR and the story there and dig into your time in Africa. But before I do that, I think it's a perfect lead into how this all started for you. So what is your background? I know you as a photographer and a filmmaker 
was that always a vision of yours? What was what other work did you do? What did you, what were your interests? Uh, your sort of school and university. How did this all begin yeah. for you? Uh, you know, I, honestly, it it's really something that I still even kind of I, I think as a photographer and as a filmmaker, and you might say this for yourself as well. You know, you're always trying to not necessarily reinvent yourself, but trying to understand what kind of quote, I guess, artist or photographer or filmmaker you are. Because I think, uh, I think even like musicians, you know, as you know, album one, two, and three usually look very different. And I think it's the same as the years go on as a photographer. And so for myself, I'm still, you know, wondering like, what, what really am I? Like, how can I even be labeled if it even matters? Because initially it wasn't photography that, you know, kind of got me, got me going out into Africa and into, you know, that kind of environment. Um, because back in school I was a business major and, um, and I loved film, like as in just love movies and not necessarily documentaries. I was just always drawn to, drawn to film itself. Um, but never, you know, never like as a pursuit, I didn't study it. I didn't uh, do anything other than watch it. And, uh, and I guess it was middle of college. I, there was an opportunity to go backpacking through Tibet randomly. And uh, I kind of had nothing to do in between my sophomore and junior year. So my second and third year of college. And I said, you know what, screw it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to just go and go to Tibet and hang out with a bunch of Buddhist nomads for a month, which is going to be amazing. And yeah. Yeah. Everyone's going to be like, wow, you have no direction, but, uh, but <laughs> and I'm, he's like, I know. And I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 19. What else am I going to do? So, um, I, uh, so after that, you know, that was a month and I mean, literally, you know, I think you've been to Nepal and, um, yeah. in, in those, in that region and it's visually just, um, just gorgeous and, and it was my first time exposed to, you know, I guess, quote, the developing world. Um, and, and really, it was just kind of a thrust into, you know, uh, an environment that, that I had never been exposed to ever. I mean, we didn't travel that much as a family. We went to, you know, France once, you know, and went to Mexico plenty of times. But who, so, so does everyone in Texas. So, so it was very, uh, it was very eye-opening. It was something that felt very natural you know, I literally, it was just a very relational experience. And, um, and that truly like experiencing was so, so much a part of it that there was no, you know, medium taking me there. It was like, Oh, I'm going to there to shoot some doc or, or cover some story. It was purely, I'm going to go and, you know, um, see, see what I find. And, um, and, and from there I came back, I still had two more years of college and nearly dropped out. And my dad was like, I'm, I'm not letting you drop out. You can do whatever the hell you want after that, but you're not going to be a dumbass and drop out. So I didn't finish <laughs> college with the, you know, bullshit business degree. Not that business degrees are bullshit. For me, it didn't make sense. Man, here's the 19 year old going to Tibet with no plan. So, you know, what is I going to do uh, in the, you know, the financial sector of America? And, uh, and I just was determined to make this Tibetan, experience metaphorically the rest of my life but what how i that that was kind of the big question and uh and i guess it was the next the next summer again quasi directionless i was working on a ranch during uh during my third year at university saved up money and africa was another kind of geographical point on on my heart um 
and decided to use that money to buy a plane ticket, fly to Tanzania with no agenda, uh, other than, you know, go stay with a Maasai tribe, you know, which was so uh, naive and cliche. And, but still it was just like, yeah, I'm going to Tanzania. I'm like going to be like with like the tribal people. Um, and looking back, it was just like, what, what the hell was I even thinking? But I did, I landed on the ground, brought my camera because I just wanted to have memories for myself and stayed with a, a a community of Maasai people and through people that I had met while in, um, outside Arusha. And, uh, and that's kind of when I saw this unearthing of, of photography. And that's kind of when I started connecting the dots kind of like, okay, I, I enjoy this. And I think that there's maybe some, you know, hinge of talent there, I guess you could call it. And, uh, and, and I, and it really makes sense or it translates very well in Africa. So what does that mean? And, um, and that's kind of where it went from there. And I ended up getting a job right after college. Uh, well, like a, a quote, real person job actually sidebar, <laughs> and not to bore you. Uh, but it, I was working as an editor for this production company in Plano, which is a uh, suburb of Dallas and just like slowly dying inside. And, uh, and again, that's when the economy wasn't doing great. There were layoffs at my work. And I said, I, I just have to leave. And that's when my dad said, you're a dumbass. And I said, well, I maybe, but I just need to try, you know, kind of try out this, um, this thing that I felt, you know, a year ago. And so I randomly got a job where, I mean, I say I got a job. I think I probably, you know, paid them to let me go and shoot, <laughs> shoot a, a film and some photography for a small NGO in Rwanda. And they, um, and it went well and they were kind of like, Hey, if you want to like chill out here and post up for a bit and we've got some work, we'll actually, you know, pay you now for, uh, for the next like six months and you could freelance yourself out and, you know, stay at our, our place. And it was like this, like, I felt like a, Colombian drug lord. I had this huge house to myself, which was like their office, but it was me and another guy. And the other guy had his own family in another home. So I was like sitting here like, okay, what, what world did I fall into? And before I knew it, work started turning in. And I, you know, once you're there, you just kind of, you know, um, you, you just start building a network naturally, uh, especially in a place like Rwanda, which in 2009 was, still, you know, kind of an unknown place outside of, you know, I guess the genocide or guerrillas. Um, it was still probably, you know, seen as a, a dangerous country, which it far, it was a far cry from that. Um, but I was one of the few people on probably, I wouldn't, I mean, on the continent with an SLR camera, which in that time was kind of like the boom of that. It's like, whoa, an SLR camera, you know, these really cinematic, you know, images that are coming out of it in terms of film and filmmaking. And, uh, and I think I hit it in a great stride and just started, um, garnering work from there. Amazing. So how did the, did you start filming just because the cameras that you were taking stills with now had the ability to film or did that come from when you were working at the production company? Um, that, you know, honestly, uh, you know, I started off with this Panasonic HVX 200, which if you're yeah asking like in terms of like the, yeah, the, the hardware side of it, that was like, it was like this boxy thing and I had this lens adapter and like, I look like I, I'm surprised that I wasn't shot walking into these, 
you know, these villages because it looked like I was carrying like a weapon. It was just so massive. And I came back after trip one before I was like properly living in Africa, met a buddy for lunch. And he's like, hey, man, check out this thing called a Cayman 7D. And I was like, what, this small thing? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he showed me this film. Like, <laughs> like, this is better than this, you know, friggin' tank that I'm carrying around. And so, and so then I just like, you know, just completely lock, stock, and barrel sold the whole kit and bought a 7D. And, uh, and for better, for worse, have been kind of like, you know, it's been <laughs> like this, uh, you know, um, third part of me that it's, I've mastered it in a sense that I'm so comfortable with it. And I feel like I shoot really well with it and I've really specced it out. That's great for me and the lenses that I use. Um, it's a little, you know, dated in the sense of what people are using these days, even in these bush shoots you know people are running around with reds and whatnot um but but that is yeah but then i just fell in love with how light it was and how easy i could be in places and get into very hard to reach places at times dangerous places and i think there's this like um you know you um can kind of unarm people naturally because you can even you know sometimes my little you know uh party trick you know turning there's a lot of us i'll turn the camera on myself let them use the camera i'm not really you know worried about it and uh it, it, it it's become almost kind of my golden ticket through places whereas having you know a huge kit with lights and you know uh sound and all this other stuff kind of being a one-man band uh fit my work really well and i think it has given me the best access for me and again that's not for every filmmaker or whomever uh, but for myself, it's it's not about really the you know what what kind of image it really produces. I think it produces just perfect enough image, but the story is more important to me, and it um and it's a, given me just um a, a closer perspective to people and places. Interesting. Yeah. Are you so you still do you still shoot some stuff on SLRs now? I mean, as in video wise. <laughs> pretty much that's all all i do i mean i you know i can operate some other stuff but you know i it's like i feel very clunky with it and so and i think that's kind of it's that's where i'm you know i feel uh you know i probably feel like tommy lee jones felt at the end of no country for old men where you kind of <laughs> it's like great film oh beautiful film I actually watched it like a month ago for the first time, um, in a while, but yeah, it was just kind of like this, you know, this old guard of, I don't know, kind of like shotgun filmmakers, you know, or photographer, or maybe not photographers. They all still use whatever cameras, but like a, for a filmmaker coming into the, you know, you know, the 2010s, early 2000s, you know, where now, you know, I think, um, in terms of filmmaking, uh, whether it's NGO or journalism or, you know, you know, if that's vice or otherwise, like it's not, it's not, um, you know, people are wanting something, something, you know, I guess of higher production value, I guess are the words for it. And so, but for, but for me, I, I still believe in it and not maybe, I, yeah, there's other cameras that produce a better quality image. Um, but I'm not as much concerned with it. Now, maybe, you know, my potential clients are, but, uh, but I still, you know, fight for it and and try to try to keep it a part of the um, part of the arsenal. Story, as you said, is 
so important. And in documentary filmmaking, it sits at the core of everything. Mm. Some of the best documentaries that I know of piece together footage and assets that historically existed along with uh, content that exists out with what was captured specifically for the documentary, um, Mm. but is sourced at a later date. And if the story is authentic and true and real and and just a great story arc from start to finish, Mm -hmm. that is far more important than the actual footage itself. And I think uh, having watched some of your your stuff, the authenticity that you get uh, from the image that that you capture in this unobtrusive way Mm. is really at the essence of what you see through the, the, the screen. And I think that goes far beyond the actual kit. I, I think one of the pitfalls of uh, new filmmakers is what is the newest, shiniest kit that everyone else is using? Mm-hmm. Focusing far, far too little on how to tell good stories visually. Absolutely. No, I fully agree. And I, you know, I think that and coupled with, um, you know, social media, I, I'm really thankful that, I mean, I was around doing my work when Facebook was around, but it wasn't used like it is used now. And Instagram certainly wasn't around. And so this, you know, I think on both of those, you know, this um, need for like the next, you know, piece of equipment or gear or the need to be, you know, uh, documenting every aspect of your life or concerned so much about with, you know, how many views something gets or what have you. I think it's allowed uh, just speaking on a personal level for myself to be very present. Um, and that I I'd hope, uh, translates through, through my work. Um, and, um, and yeah, and I, and I think it, I think it's a universal and a, a timeless idea, you know, what you're talking about. I mean, I'm trying to, so one of my favorite documentaries I've seen probably in the past 10 years is, um, God, I'm going to butcher the name. It's the talented Mr. Boot, I think. I'll have to check on that. But it's Lord of War, if you've ever seen that with um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick Cage. Um, yes. Nick Cage, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome film, uh, in my opinion. But uh, the, this documentary was, was it, this guy was based on Nick's, sorry, Nick Cage's character was based on this guy, um, real life kind of gun runner out of uh out in africa and this documentary was all of his uh was his home footage he shot of himself it was really um really interesting to watch it all play out because it eventually he eventually kind of foreshadowed his own demise um i recommend it i can text it to you later but uh but it was all you know stuff he shot in like 1993 with some shitty you know vhs camcorder but you're just so (laughs) enthralled or so uh captivated by you know this very interesting character and what's happening next. And to your point, it's like, I, I care less what, uh, you know, how crisp the image was. I was, um, yeah, I was more interested in the story itself. So going back to you're in Africa, you're filming for an NGO. Mm-hmm. Where did, where did that take you next? Or, or maybe we should start with what were you actually filming for, for the NGO uh, in Rwanda? Uh, the Rwanda NGO specifically, um, provided water solutions for people without access to clean water. So, um, at the time specifically for them, it was, um, drilling, um, boreholes, um, and, uh, providing wells for communities. So, so that, 
that was, yeah, yeah, kind of the lead into that NGO, NGO world. And they, um, and they were, yeah, they were, they were great to kind of platform off of and, and begin the career. And, and, um, and then because there's about a billion NGOs over in Africa that kind of like opened up that door and, uh, and then started leading different sectors of humanitarian work, which again, like I, I think all that's great. I wasn't as much concerned with, you know, being a part of the work itself. Like it was just bringing me into, you know, these places that were fascinating and, 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 and really it was what was going on outside of the work that my eyes started getting drawn to. And I think that's what led into just a general doc work and like, you know, the, small amount of journalism that I've gotten to, um, gotten to do. And, uh, and from that point, I think I just felt like I've just, I got a little bit more savvy on the ground and started, um, running into places on my own and trying to do my own stories or, um, you know, really just truly, I guess, exploring is is the best sense that I could put it. But I had a camera and I had like a, a reason to explore versus just kind of in some sort of, you know, um, you know, just wandering kind of way. Mm. A, a, a camera is the most incredible passport into places. Right. And you can meet people and do things that you would never be able to do as a tourist. I, I found it incredible for me. Mm. Uh, photography and filmmaking was never something that I pursued growing up uh, I was chuckling to myself uh, when you were talking about studying business because it's uh, an, an absolute parallel of what I did um, and then uh, left that all behind but I've been amazed what is achievable just trying to tell other people's stories and the places that you can put yourself in and it makes a big difference having that um, having that reason to be there that is more about allowing the environment and the people you're with to express their story rather than you being purely an observer like a tourist is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I fully, uh, I fully agree. And, um, you know, versus feeling, yeah, like I'm like on this perpetual eat, pray, love experience for myself. Yeah. It feels so, you know, like, like a leech on, you know, on, the uh, on the world and on experience itself. You know, I, I've been thankful that photography has allowed me to, to feel, I guess, quote purposeful. And I know it's like an overused term, but to like have purpose and feel like there's, you know, purpose in what you're doing, um, has been, uh, you know, I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't go over my head that, uh, you know, I, I, it just happened to be there. I didn't, uh, I didn't try to, you know, train into it and, and thankfully it, it turned out the way it did. And, and, and then equally it's been, it's been a weird exchange as well, because as much as it has been something where it's like, I feel like I'm like having purpose with this, cam- you know, camera and, you know, giving, um, maybe giving people value to be heard, their story to be heard. You know, there, there are times where I also feel, and this isn't real time. This is, I think like later on where, you know, and it depends on the content, I think of, um, of the job or, or the story, but feeling this sense of, you know, as I guess, as you go on, like a sense of almost numbness at times of, you know, because this camera, it has, it is this great passport, but it also can become, 
this great distant maker as well as it is. And it's very ironic just how, you know, I can be, you know, in the middle of something and shooting and feeling, um, and feeling detached because of this camera. Um, and then equally at the same time connected. And I know that's a weird, you know, oxymoron, but, um, but yeah, I, I, something I, I know what you're saying. It's you're fully immersed in those places and with the people who surround you, mm-hmm. but you're viewing it so often through this piece of glass, mm-hmm. which in a way forms or it can form this uh, barrier to the visual experience that's around you. And I found, actually, talking about the situation that we currently find ourselves globally in right now, the last sort of 12 months with a lot of the work that I've been doing, which hasn't, I did, I've worked on a pretty cool documentary project last year, which isn't finished, but a lot of the work around that had been very sort of commercial focused, which isn't, it pays bills, but it isn't my driver for doing what I do. And that had made me feel quite sort of detached and and to use your word numb to the the whole process and now i find myself confined to a house looking trying to do bits of work that i can do without going out i I can't even remember the last time i put my camera in my hand apart from the film camera that i have here with me and it's kind of given me this uh rejuvenation of desire to go out and shoot and create and also to to maybe pause a bit more when I find myself in those places to fully appreciate it. Not that I don't when I'm there, but it's really coming home to me now that I am forced to stay in one place, that these experiences are so important, and it's what your mind, or certainly what my mind, continually goes back to. Uh, and I, I think if any positives are, are going to come out of this current global situation for me that I can see already is that I think when I have the opportunity to put a camera back in my hand and go and shoot stills and create film, I think it'll be better than when I when we came into this. How I mean, just on that, how uh, all of my creative friends around the world are suffering so bad right now because to to create work you have to be out of your house more often than not unless you've got a project that's completed and now you're sitting editing it or you're writing some content which i've been lucky enough i had some content to write for for this next issue of modern huntsman and some pictures but how 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 is this for you i imagine you're in a similar boat to most creatives that i know in which is that all of your plans and projects for the rest of the year are on ice yeah, absolutely. Well, one, I mean, I feel like you articulated that really well. You know, I, it's, I, it's a weird, prof- I'm not, I mean, it can be a weird profession that we're in because, you know, it's like we get to kind of like go play with a toy for a job. You know, it's like, it's really, it's, I mean, really, <laughs> it's I, great. <laughs> I know it really is. It's like, man, I would just like, yeah, this is what I do when I was 10, like dick around with my dad's camera. And, <laughs> really still, and again, pick them off. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it, but, but, but now, you know, now it's like a part of our job. And I think it, to your point, it's like to, to be force forcibly stilled, 
you know, and, uh, and, and allow for a moment of reflection because when, you know, guys like you and I who, who travel quite a bit for our work, you can get just in this, you know, kind of, uh, um, treadmill kind of rhythm, you know, and, um, and, and lose this magic that really, sh- you know, you really just want to remain attached to it. Um, yeah. it, it, it takes I find that beca- I was becoming stale. That's almost like what I felt. It's like I was becoming stale and I couldn't see what was creative in any of it anymore. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, I, um, I, I did have a, so back in, uh, just this past January and a little bit of February, I was um, uh, on and off the Ethiopia Sudan border for a, for a project. And I hadn't shot cause we just had a child. And so I've been around and hadn't been out filming in a bit and um, different kind of quarantine. Um, and, uh, and being back, it was like the first time my eyes were kind of opened again and I started, I shot differently. I look back at my photography from that job and I'm just like, wow, like I, I, there's something, there was something different here. And I think it was the time away from it and the time to, um, you know, kind of have some pr- perspective shifting, but then with, with, yeah. So to your question, you know, with where we are now, um, I, for me personally, like on just a, you know, on a workload level, I mean, I was supposed to have gotten back from Tanzania like last week and I was going to be all over Southern Africa up until like the first of May and, and then the DRC in um, June. And so like, yeah, right now that is all on a massive pause and I don't know what's, you know, where all that will go with uh, given the present situation. And it's, and yeah, I've had conversations with other photographers that are in similar boats and it's just kind of like, what is it, what does it mean, you know, for, for us now? Cause we're, you know, when, when our, when our jobs take us to like the travel is a part of the job and a big part of it, you know, what is, what does that mean for us now? And it means something and it's not, you know, like a let's stress about this. Yes. There are stressful elements to it, but I I'm excited to honestly, you know, see what comes out of it. You know what? Um, there, I can't even tell you what it is, but, um, but it's, I think it's being at least for the moment um, forced to, to think and, um, and, and hopefully good stuff will come. One other positive, which I think will come from most people, is I've never been more on top of my paperwork. So maybe yeah. we can all take that away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, yeah, completely. All these other little admin things that just all of a sudden I'm like, wow, man, I'm yeah, I'm really getting buttoned up here, and the house is cool. yeah. <laughs> and and just <laughs> and just as something else you just brought up there is I've taken a lot from looking back at old images and old film work i mean some of it i don't even want to look at because i now look at it as that is so bad (laughs) Uh, but i think it's important to remind yourself where you've come from and how you've developed because it allows you to learn more about how to improve in the future. And I've spent the last couple of weeks re-editing old still images. I haven't done a lot of video work because I, I didn't bring a lot with me, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, I did bring a kind of bank of, of still images that I had intended to kind of revisit. And I've learned a lot from that process. I, yeah, of course, I would definitely shoot a lot of that different to how, how I did at the time. 
But I, I'm now processing that in my brain, and it's giving me a chance to stick them back in Lightroom, even see how they were edited in the first place, and wonder why on earth they were edited in that way. Right, right. But also, like compositionally, why they were shot that way. Maybe it was. Maybe I, I still think it was good, and to remind myself about why I did that, but also mm-hmm. see all the issues that now come to light and take that on board going future when eventually we're allowed outside again with a camera in our hand. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's so important because there's like a real, um, you know, um, innocence, I think to the beginning of our, of our work, like those, those, those initial jobs, those initial, you know, um, stills that we're producing, and I think they're, you know, kind of like in the middle of your career, you kind of, to your point, you're just kind of, you know, thinking back and like, you know, nostalgically more so kind of like, oh, wow, you know, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I shot that, like that. And like, look at that saturation, Jesus, you know, that's not even a real color. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that's not even a real color. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's like every nine out of every 10 Instagram pictures. Yeah, yeah I know. I was just like, <laughs> I'm like, I just like threw this thing in the Snapseed and it, good lord I, don't, I can't even tell what, what this is but you know outside of like all of that i think um going back and and see, you can kind of almost see you know maybe is like the way you'd go back and look at home videos like of a child and seeing it just kind of develop slowly and uh and i look back and you can almost kind of see you know uh this thing growing and um and, and yes it's like it needs refining and it's, you know, compositions, a little law, whatever it is. Um, but, but that's what got you going. And I think, and I think it's important to go back and look, I think, I I think it was maybe a year ago or maybe a a little over a year ago. I started doing that. Um, I had, there was like a couple of months where work wasn't coming in and to keep myself busy, I was going back and revisiting work and, and I saw, and yeah, I just was seeing it just so differently than how I was seeing it as I was shooting it. And even like some years after that, and, uh, and just like, wow, just like, you know, I can't, and even stuff that I didn't realize I had, I was like, I can't believe I, you know, had all this stuff. I didn't like, cause at the time I was looking for like the best, you know, the select stuff when in reality it was this other stuff that I thought was just crap. And, but that was like the, like some of, some of even the better parts of the, of the projects. Um, but it, it takes me away from it and going back again and, and the, and the, the beauty in that is I think it informs the the present work and it reminds you, reminds you like, Hey, like get outside of this, you know, like, yeah, you're a professional now and you, you know, you have these ideas and like how these things look, but go back to, you know, don't lose who, who that was, that kind of photographer, because there's some really beautiful things to remember and, and even learn from. Yeah. I have to say, I've been looking at your Instagram particularly in the last few weeks because you've been stuck at home like we all have. Uh, you've been posting some images that you had historically taken mm. and some of the stuff on the, oh, well, I was going to say some of the stuff is an insult. Almost every image that I put up, uh, that you put up blows me away. Uh, I'm, some of the stuff from the Amazon, you know, the black and white stuff from the Amazon was just, yeah, I was, it was, it was those images actually that prompted me to get back in touch with you, I was like, "Why haven't? I, how, why have we not podcasted yet? Mm. What was the? What? I, I want to go back and speak about Central Africa, but since I brought up the Amazon, what took yeah. you? What took you to South America? 
Um, well, that, that was, that was in Ecuador in 2012. At the time I was living in Nairobi. I had, um, I just moved, moved out there from the DRC. I was bouncing around all over Africa. I I think I had suitcases in like five different countries at the time. I was (laughs) in Nairobi in this little place outside, uh, outside of the city. And, uh, long story short connection, someone was like, Hey, want to connect you with this girl who's trying to shoot this pilot out in the Amazon. Um, and kind of her backstory was she came from, uh, a lot of, I guess, wealth in England and kind of was like, Hey, this isn't, you know, that's great. Love my family, but that's not necessarily who I am. And I want to do something with, I guess, my status and the resources I have. So she wanted to go and, and just kind of, um, kind of bring, parts of the Amazon to life in a palpable way and a very human way. And so she, she was like, Hey, you know, I like your, like your work. Would you want to come out to come out to Ecuador? I was like, well, I'm in Kenya, but sure. Uh, and so we, we went into the thick of the thick of the Amazon in, in Ecuador for like 30 days. And I mean, like, like proper, you know, in the freaking jungle and we're like day, like 23, you know, I feel like, you know, Martin Sheen and apocalypse. Now I'm like, I really, <laughs> really can't wait for to hear the rudder of that plane coming in. Um, but, uh, were, because, were you writing, were you writing letters back to your grandma? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I was, yeah, I was probably writing letters to myself at that point. I think I went half crazy, but, uh, but it was, it was, awesome um and yeah so so it was shooting this pilot for her um she was kind of like on on camera and uh doing you know bits to camera and uh and uh man it was just like being there for 30 days i mean you kind of see a full cycle of a community you know they did a whole uh god i forgot what it's called it's called natem which is just like other level ayahuasca and you're just you know tripping like the whole village was just for 48 hours, basically on one long trip. And, uh, wow. I didn't partake. I was going to ask, did you partake? I, I was, no, I was, uh, I don't, I don't you know. You're busy I, documenting it. It would have been a, I was just documenting, would have been some pretty interesting footage had I partaken. Uh, <laughs> it might've been, might've been my best work, but, uh, I just, <laughs> who so knows? You'll never know now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, uh, I did a couple of things. Like I drank some of the tobacco, but like I'd been chewing tobacco since I was like nine. So that was pretty, since uh, you were nine years old. Yeah, I was, you know, already. Yeah, you're from Texas, right? So, I mean, you yeah, basically come out the womb chewing yeah, tobacco. or That's like, uh, you know, it's like you get your driver's license and then, you know, a can of Copenhagen. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but I, that was uh, really fascinating. And they, I, I was just blown away by their um, um, just, a, what's, what's the word? Um, just survivalness. I mean, just, I and mean, it's nothing for them. It's just like me going. It's just the, life, right? It's just life for them. But yeah, yeah it, it's, it's for them. They'd be laughing and they did when I would, you know, just express my gratitude and express my just, um, uh, just how in awe I was of, of how resourceful and they were of, of the environment. And, uh, and, but it was, it was just normal life, but it was really a, a cool thing to be a part of for that long. I mean, that doesn't happen very often and won't happen probably ever again. You know, I'm married with a child at the time, you know, I was in my mid twenties and, you know, 30 days in the Amazon wasn't a big deal, but I, I was so thankful for that, for that trip because, because again, it's like, 
walls get really broken down because before you know it, you, you know, you get essentially adopted into their, to their world and into their families. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think that's where, that's where you get your best work to come out of, you know, where you're not a guy with a camera anymore. You're, you're, you're a part of, of, um, of a family, of a community, of an experience. And, and the camera is just like anything else. It's not, uh, it becomes less weird. Yeah. It's, that's one thing that I discovered last year. It was the first time that I had attempted to truly immerse myself in proper documentary filmmaking. And I was on the ground for give or take three months. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I found that it was probably after about a month, I was no longer a guest there. I was part of the environment that I was in and the people who I was documenting didn't, I don't even think they were cognizant of the fact I had a camera in my hand anymore. I was just there as if I was, I was always there. And And it makes such a difference to your ability to storytell and get an authentic view of the scenarios that you find yourself in when people are completely comfortable and no longer really aware that a, that a camera is there. The longer that you spend on the ground, the better the story becomes. And I, I think it's it's not just, I mean, some of that is because people aren't um, conscious of the fact that they've got a lens pointing at their face. But mm. Some of it is also because more interesting things happen the more time you can spend in a place. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um yeah, it's, uh, you know, I can, I, I'm sure you can say the same. It's like, how many like really great moments have I missed with my camera? Because it's like, you get half a day somewhere, a couple hours somewhere. And, and, uh, and na- I mean, de- naturally, of course, someone's going to be like, get that out of my face or, you know, th- you know, all of a sudden become uncandid. Um, and, um, but, but when you're to your point, when you're there for a while, all of a sudden you get real moments, you get, you know, um, you're trusted and, um, and that's so important. I mean, with documentary work, especially, um, and that, that was the DRC, what you're referring to. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, this relocation from, from Namibia. So a lot of that time was spent in Namibia on the place where these elephant were captured. And then we did the journey up and then we went into the DRC and I mean, it was, uh, and then, and then, sorry, carry on, man. Oh no, no no! I was just say I I've uh, I first heard about that project that you were doing. Um, I think through uh, I can't either. I mean, I know we have a handful. Probably of Tyler, people. I guess. Probably it's probably Ty- Yes, yes, exactly. No, it was Tyler. And uh, man, I mean, such an incredible project. I I've I've just been um, anyway. Just can't wait to to see what comes out of it. But well, yeah, I'm uh, hopefully I'm gonna now that I've got all this time on my hands, I'm gonna have because unfortunately. It's this like catch twenty two when you're at this well at, at the point that I am in my sort of I it's kind of, I almost don't even view it as a as a career because I if you're, someone asks me what I do I can't even really tell them because I seem to do a little bit of everything mm. and sometimes I feel like I do a little bit of everything not particularly well yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, when so hopefully I'm going to have time to to start to put that together I need to go back out and finish and finish shooting it. Um, and it was, we had a lot of things that went on on that trip, um, between us 
losing elephants just with the stress of mm. transporting from from A to B mm. you know, over many many days. It is w- one of the the risks that you take trying to do ambitious conservation projects, mm-hmm. uh, and then. Uh, something which actually I haven't talked about on the podcast at this point because it wasn't something that I felt comfortable bringing up um, without speaking to my friend who was involved in it. But but recently, just after the new year, we had a chat about um, the incident that happened when we were in Congo and about the documentary process and including that in. But uh, we actually got charged when we were in Congo by one of the elephants that had been taken a few months before. And um, Rudy, who was one of the professional hunters from Namibia, who was there and had worked with these elephants for 20 years, uh, he was standing with me when we got charged and he just happened to be last in line as we were trying to get out of the path of this this cow elephant. And I mean, he came incredibly close to dying. Uh, he only started to walk again basically at christmas time that was three or four months after the uh after the accident uh and it, it brought it brings me to something that i wanted to ask you about which was that that was the first time in my life filming or taking images where i was faced with something which i wasn't sure whether i should really be capturing now i i've always had this thing in the back of my mind and i, I joke with other filmmakers and, and friends of mine who are photographers mm-hmm. because of the kind of things and places that i've been over the years some of them are not particularly safe mm-hmm. and the sort of blase young guy in me has always said whatever fucking happens make sure you keep on filming i don't i don't care you know if i'm gonna die at least right. catch it and mm-hmm. that's not to say that i'm being reckless it's just that that's uh, maybe that's a mindset of a, a filmmaker and a, a documentary photographer is capture what's going on as authentically as possible so and i'd even kind of had this conversation w- with rudy who who was the guy who um got trampled by the elephant uh only two days before we were releasing these elephants in the Boma, um, in, the, in the DRC. And it was this very complex mix of emotions because there was a dead elephant in the crate mm-hmm. while we're releasing these other elephants from what was at the time drought-stricken Namibia on a place that had too many elephants to this new life in this lush, green, incredible environment full of water and food. But we had this we had death and loss and the people who had brought these elephants, they knew them. And so where I'm, there's, there's tears and, and crying and emotions flowing as the last light fades on our first night outside Kinshasa um, in the DRC. And I'm capturing these, and I'm, I was actually speaking to Rudy, he was holding some lights for me so I could film this dead elephant in, a, in the crate and trying to do it in a, a tasteful way that shows this complicated story, but without, you know, without it being sort of death porn, because that's not not what it's about. And we we had this conversation at the time about the import. Well, actually, the following morning, there was a little bit of uh, heated discussion with a couple of other members of the team that weren't happy that I had captured that. Uh, and I was trying to explain to them that it's so important that we tell these stories authentically. Otherwise, we end up with this bullshit narrative about conservation in the world and how it's always a happy story and a happy ending. And it's a sort of Disney-fied view of everything. 
And uh, Rudy and I were having this conversation about telling authentic stories. So when, like two or three days later, we're in the, the chaos of being charged and he's lying in the dirt, I would no idea if he's even alive or not. The camera is still rolling and I had all of this running through my head. Like, how much do I capture? I, I, there was nothing that I could do to help him because there was a, quite a few other people there. Do, do I film all of it? I don't know. I still haven't quite processed it all in my mind. And it took me probably about three months to watch the footage back again because the camera was rolling the whole time because I was standing beside him when it happened. Uh, have you, I mean, I know that you've been in some incredible situations where the bullets have been flying and there's maybe only a few moments between life and death and chance. Mm-hmm. How, how, how have you tackled that as a, as a documentary filmmaker? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's, I think, I think you, I think you really bring up a good point. And for any photographer or filmmaker who finds themselves in these kind of situations, it's kind of, and, and finds themselves in those kind of situations and has a, you know, a conscience and a, and a, a real, you know, actual, you know, empathy for humanity. They, they, you know, you wonder like how far is too far and yeah, what is death porn or what is, you know, um, what is, what is too much. And, but at the same time, it's like, where's the line of, yeah, but this is the story, you know, this is important to the story. And I guess maybe that is the line is under, is knowing that, you know, this is a part of, of the reality of what I'm filming. And so, um, and so for your, you know, God, I can't, I've never been anywhere near a charging elephant or, or any animal for that matter. And, uh, I've heard stories and that sounds insanely, um, um, horrific. And so, um, I think, yeah, I feel the same way as you did. And, and I have in, in my own work. And, um, you know, I, I'd say, um, I'd say the first time something like happened and that was a part of the story and, uh, and I didn't film it because I, I just, I just couldn't. And it was very much a part of the story. I was in Sierra Leone in 2010 uh, or 11, and um, it was it was this health story on a malaria in uh, in Sierra Leone, and we were that we had just come back out of like the bush. We were in Freetown in the capital, and um, and this woman had arrived into into the clinic we were at, and she had come from I can't remember where, but like a two days journey. And I don't know why she came to Freetown, but for whatever reason, she came to Freetown for medical assistance for her child who was like four years old. And uh, he was on the brink of death um, from malaria. And and I was with the doctor who was treating the child and the the mother was like, I'll, I'll never, I mean, I'll just, and, and like, I've been in much, much and like legitimate danger of my life situations. This was not one of those, but I was right next to her and she was just, uh, you know, um, uh, flailing over her child as he was, as he was, as he was dying and he did die. And I saw the whole thing happen and it would have been something very relevant to what I was covering. But, uh, her, um, her, her, her grief was, was, was a lot, um, for me to feel like I could pull out my camera and it felt incredibly insensitive. I don't care how much it was a part of the story. 
and uh, watching them bag up her child, you know, put a tag on his toe. And she was talking to the, as she spoke, speaking in her local tongue, but I could tell she was like speaking to the child as if he was still alive. And it was, it'll remain to be the the hardest thing I've probably witnessed. Um, and, and I decided not to shoot because that question didn't run in my mind, but I guess subconsciously it did. And I, uh, and I, and I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, now, you know, when I was in DRC in 2015, uh, was working on a documentary called the last animal directed by, oh, yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that on, um, after you tell the story. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, well this specific moment in the, um, on, on shooting it, there were, I came into a situation where we were in a helicopter and came down cause there was a fight between, this is a little just out of context, just kind of to connect the dots, but, uh, between the uh, Congolese military and some poachers. And I got in there and a couple of poachers had been shot up pretty bad. One guy got shot through the throat and like out his, out his chin. And he, I, I still to this day have no idea how he survived. And the other guy was shot a couple times in the chest and, uh, and they were at the moment, uh, sustained and, and living. And so, loaded them up in the helicopter and we're taking them back to, uh, to, to the headquarters uh, to give them medical help. And then also, you know, in, investigated and interrogated. And that's, I filmed the whole thing of that. And that was, uh, and yes, they were quote poachers and they could be deemed as the villain or one of the villains in the film, but they were really just poor, um, impoverished people that had no other way of making money to, provide for their families. And this was a good amount of money and it was quick and it was easy. And, and, uh, their family's life weighed heavier than an elephant's life. Uh, and, and, and going back, I, I, I read that and, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, I, um, uh, I watched that footage again and I see it differently because I'm like, I, the guy had, it didn't make the cut, but like he had like tears in his face and probably some of that was pain. But I think a lot of that was like, what is my reality? You know, that I, that I just, yeah, I, I, I'm sure he, these thoughts weren't going on in his head, but I think it, there was a little bit of it kind of like that I have to smuggle ivory or bush meat or whatever it is to try to survive. And here I'm getting shot as if I'm, you know, as if I'm fully armed with, with, uh, you know, like some paramilitary group when mm. some of these guys were, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to, to balance. Um, it is. Yeah, that is, but it is the reality of what's happening on the ground. And I think balancing the, that responsibility of being, um, sensitive to the, the humanistic realities of people and letting the world see the reality of what is going on, good or bad, is a very hard line to walk. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But uh, that, that is the game we play. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about that film uh, because I watched... The, that film, uh, The Last Animals, at the start of last year, uh, before, I, I mean, I knew who you were at that point, but 
I didn't know that you had filmed that and I didn't watch it because I knew you had filmed it. I had watched it when I was looking for inspiration prior to me going to uh, Namibia and Congo to do that, to, to film this documentary I was working on. And I was looking at all the kind of docs that being made past and present along similar kind of veins. And I came across that. Uh, and then you and I spoke on the phone because I was asking some advice before I went to Congo, knowing that you'd been there. And uh, it came up that you'd worked on that. I said, no way. I just watched that a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, that, was a, that was a big film. It, it toured around the world, uh, mm-hmm. got accolades at a number of film festivals. How did, uh, how did that come about? And, and talk me through that filming process. Yeah, that, um, that, that was a, for me on production, that was like a two year process of filming and Kate Brooks, who's the director of the film. She had been, I think she probably, she spent like four or five years on it, I believe. Um, but for, for me, you know, to, um, in terms of, uh, the CAR part of my story, I, that's the CAR trip actually led me to this job because I had come back from the CAR with, uh, without getting too much detail, but I wanted to do my own documentary, um, on a similar topic, not completely like what Kate was trying to cover. Um, but it had some, um, some shared elements and, um, a guy that I had met, um, from the African parks network referred me to Kate and he's like, Hey, look, you know, she's really got some legs on this film and some resources. You may want to reach out to Kate and see, uh, and see if you guys could partner together. So, so we, Kate and I got connected and, um, I was, um, yeah, from that point was brought on and, and shot most of that stuff in the DRC and Kenya as well. And, uh, and yeah, that was that, you know, I, out of all the work, that I've done, you know, it's like that kind of, um, you know, that kind of genre, that kind of, um, style of working was the best for me. Cause you we were just going in and letting the story, letting the story happen. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was great to see the, the film get the success and get the notoriety that, that it deserved. And especially in a time when kind of ivory was really, was, was, was at a really high point. And I think Leo DiCaprio came out with the film in November, uh, uh, the, I, the, the ivory, ivory game. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah Cause he, he was executive director on that, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that, and I think there was like one or two others or something like that. And so anyway, so it was, yeah, really, um, you know, in the midst of some of these high profile films, uh, that it shined and, um, and, and so, you know, Garamba, which is in the North of, of the Congo, uh, Garamba national park, one of the oldest parks in in Africa, um, at the time was kind of on the back end of its really most conflicted point. And there were, um, poachers coming in from, uh, from Sudan. Um, and that also, uh, LRA combatants, uh, the Lord resistance army who had originated from Uganda and fled into neighboring countries to kind of hide out, but were profiting on, on ivory and on, uh, the illegal wildlife trade. And so, you know, you had a true war zone for all intents and purposes out in this area. Um, there was no real front line, but you, you have a situation where you have these, you know, park guards who, you know, like, okay, you know, let's, let's keep an eye out for, you know, Joe over here, who's snaring animals, you know, and, uh, and we'll find them or, you know, put them in 60 days in jail or something. But all of a sudden they get like a real, um, a real sense of true combat brought to their doorstep and, and asked to do something that a soldier signs up to do and, uh, versus, you know, 
maybe what a park guard might be asked to do. And so you see these guys step up and say, okay, well, yeah, this is, this is what I feel called to protect. And, um, and I'm going to risk my life to do so. And so you also have this interesting pairing with the national army was coming and they were working in collaboration. And so you have like this, these really interesting logistics of, you know, um, uh, of how that all played out and everyone's kind of pursuing the same enemy for different reasons. And, um, and so to be in the middle of that was fascinating as a filmmaker. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, you know, spent, God, just days and days and nights out on patrols with, with all these guys and coming into situations like the one I just explained. And, and a lot of it is, a lot of it is just walking, walking, walking in this heat, as you know, African heat, especially Congolese heat. Uh, and you're just like, fuck, this is just, <laughs> you know, um, sometimes you wonder why you're there. Oh my God. Like, I'm just like sitting here and I'm just like, oh, like what, you know, what, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what we're really <laughs> doing? Um, but, but then, yeah, when you see the film come together, just like what will happen with yours, you know, you're like, okay, those three months out in the sticks that, that now I see it, you know, now it's now mm-hmm. like the story was, is important. And, and that's kind of what the last animals was, was for myself. And Kate was so easy to work with. And so, um, it was just a great working experience. Well, just give me the um, uh, give our listeners the the premise of the the documentary and where they can watch that. I think yeah. it's on Netflix. I think. Yeah. So uh, the last animals um, can be viewed on Hulu right now, and uh, the premise of the film is um, uh, ivory trade and illegal ivory trafficking out of um, out of Africa. But we specifically kind of honed in on. Central Africa and how that has funded, um, you know, other activities like um, funding terrorist organizations, uh, but primarily focusing on how it uh, fed the the Asian market, and and really just how. Um, I mean, for me, watching the film, walking away, just how sad it is, just the fact that ivory is seen, whether it's for as a trinket or seen as a medicinal. Uh, um, tool that, um, that that's what, like we're losing, we're losing very beautiful species of animals for, for something that has no medicinal value and for, you know, for trinkets that, um, that sit on people's aesthetic appeal, yeah. appeal, you know? Um, and so that's, so that's what the film focused on and, and how criminal it's become and dangerous it's become to, to be a part of pushing back against it, whether you're, you know, on the the Asian side, you know, which Kate did a little bit of undercover stuff going in and trying to purchase ivory herself. And, um, you know, whether you're there or whether it's on the ground in the Congo, like truly, um, fighting and, uh, getting into firefights with people that are battle hardened, you know, uh, guys that are coming from a rebel or rebel groups or from, um, from paramilitary groups out in neighboring countries that have seen conflict for two decades, and you're up against like a massive, uh, a massive enemy with, with a lot of power. Um, and so, um, so yeah, there, there were a lot of, uh, there are a lot of really interesting elements to the story outside of just like, Oh, you know, well, of course we don't want to see elephants, um, di- you know, vanish in front of our eyes. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great film. I'd encourage anyone to go, go check it out. 
in those situations and scenarios, and this is a question I've asked myself more and more, maybe in the last one or two years, uh, this will be particularly pertinent f- for you, given that you have a, a wife and child now, but do you worry about your level of risk in these situations? I, I never really used to care about that at all. It was just, I'm going to experience the most mind-blowing, amazing thing I can possibly put, a scenario I can possibly put myself in. And as long as when I die one day, I leave behind a whole bunch of great stories, then that was mainly what I cared about. And to some extent, that's still true, but I have thought about my own mortality a little more as I've started to get older. And, yeah. and that's not because I have anybody that relies on me. I don't, it's that reality must be uh, way more um, encompassing yes. for you, given yeah. that you you have a family. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The answer is yes. But I, I think, um, to give an example, I was in, um, the first time I was in Mogadishu was in 2012 in Somalia, and covering... Um, some heavy topics over there. Uh, and I was uh, shooting shooting video and the guy I was with uh, was a, an Italian photographer. And, uh, and I believe he had a family. And we, this was, I don't know, middle of the afternoon and we're kind of on the outskirts of Mogadishu and just a couple of buildings down from us, um, a suicide bomber came in and blew, blew the place up, had explosives, it was actually a female underneath her, um, underneath her uh, burqa, and it, you know all shit just broke loose as you can imagine, and uh, and we're just like we out of here, and um, and uh, there was just chaos in the street, and I remember we eventually got out of there and we switched cars um, because there was also like we were working with a few the the, the subject of the film um, was was rape in Somalia and how it's just something that isn't, uh, considered an issue because of, uh, Islamic culture and, and religion that this is, you know, not something that, that happens, but, um, but it, it, especially in Mogadishu where there's IDP camps everywhere it does. So anyway, so we're having to like move around in car, different cars because their word was getting out what we were doing and they're like, okay, well, you know, this, we need to kind of change our, our visibility. Anyway, we get back and, uh, the photographer I was with, he was just like, this is a fucking bullpit. He's like, I'm not, what am I doing? He's like, I should not be next two doors down from a bomb going off. And for me at the time, I was like 25 or something. And I was just like, yeah, man, yeah, like totally. Um, maybe we should go back out. You know, I, I did, it just wasn't, <laughs> yep. Didn't, yep. didn't really, uh, didn't really hit my radar. Yes. I'm not, no, I'm not fearless at all. Um, I'm not without worry going into these places, even at those times, you know, when you're in your twenties and you just don't, and don't have as much, you know, relying on you. Um, and, uh, but, but for me, I still was kind of like, you know, I, I just, I'm interested in this, in this topic of stuff, you know, that, that, that involves conflict, that involves danger. I'm not like, I wouldn't consider myself an adrenaline junkie, but I'm, I'm drawn to it because there's some sort of truths within it that, that, uh, that I want to, that I want to explore and I want to try to express through my, through my work. Fast forward to now. Um, that, 
that 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 still exists, but it's much, 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 much more calculated, much more thought out because I have a wife and a child that um, that relies on me, um, you know, especially emotionally, you know, like we're we're a family now and um, and especially with the child that just got born, that honestly changed a lot. I, I'd always heard, you know, like, oh man, once that baby comes, like you're really it's gonna put some things in perspective and it did when i was married but it just becomes even more uh more so when a child comes and for me it's not yeah it's it's like it's not it's not all of a sudden didn't turn into fear like i'm afraid of going places like when i was just in ethiopian sudan we were had tons of security briefings and security with us you know it was uh you know you're you're kind of your head's on a my head was on a swivel for like 18 days mildly stressful but uh it was fine, but it was the, the more the fear was the absence of them than it was, you know, it's like me, something happening to me. It wasn't like, I'm afraid of me dying. It's more of when I die, I don't, it's the, it was the absence then of my wife and child. I wouldn't do with them, which when yeah, you the void you leave as a person, right. It's, you know, cause it doesn't matter if I, you know, if you were to actually die, but I, um, my wife and my child or, you know, my, my wife. Yeah, they probably care a little bit, I would guess. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they've, they are, they are my world and, and it's, it's a struggle because at the same time you're like, but you know, there's this other side of you that it always was. And how do you find that balance? And my wife and I communicate on it really well. And she's been really gracious with my work. Um, when it takes me to these kind of places, um, but it's still something that I think I'll forever have to address, you know, when that job comes up, you know, when, when I have to ask myself, okay, is this, is this worth it? And what does that even mean? Is this worth it? Is, is any risk worth it then? You know? Um, but I think that you are also who you are and I, you know, you have to evolve and you have to adapt depending on what's around you. For example, for me, like having a wife and a child, um, but you, but there's still, you know, there's, I think there's a way to do it with caution and with wisdom. Um, but, uh, but it, yeah, again, it sounded like 10 years ago where it's like, ah, you know, I'm, I, I'm not even going to ask the questions like, you know, will we have security? Will there be this? Or that? You know, do you know anyone on the ground? Um, Cause I went to Iraq in 2013, very much like that. I was based out of London briefly. And uh, this chick was like, Hey, you want to go to go to Iraq and, you know, cover some stuff. And, and I said, yeah, sure. And anyway, we don't. <laughs> tell tell me a little. I didn't even know you'd been to Iraq. <laughs> tell me yeah. a little bit about that. What on earth? What? Who were you covering? What for? Uh, that was with the BBC, and uh, we. It was. It was. So this guy had opened up this like ski resort and north of Erbil in Kurdistan, and so oh, we. I've were, heard about this. Yeah. Did you did you shoot some footage for, for yeah. a documentary about veterans going to ski there? I didn't. No, I didn't do that. No. Um, oh, I, okay. It's, I, it must be the same ski resort. I would guess there's probably only one there. Yeah. 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 Exactly. No, I, I would imagine it would be. I mean, at the time, yeah. I don't because I was there when it was like the infrastructure was just put in, um, and uh, but it, it was like open for business. It was really eerie because we were there, and this guy who's an American was just like, you know, around here they were planning to see a lot of families coming. I'm like, are you kidding? Like who? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, Northern Iraq, but still Iraq. Anyway. So, so that it was that and, and kind of posing the question, you know, can tourism thrive 
and in Iraq. And, uh, and so we had to try to cover both the conflict and, I mean, which at the time the conflict was more kind of like the brewing of ISIS. Like ISIS wasn't a household name at the time, but uh, okay. um, it was kind of um, beginning to fester, I guess. And so we went down to, uh, down to Kirkuk and again, um, uh, should be, I technically should be, I guess, dead from a suicide bomb that happened in the room that we were supposed to be in, killed 22 people. But we had to, uh, we ended up changing the schedule on an interview and told those guys like, we're going to be hours late. We show. And, wow. And so, uh, and within that window of when we would have been there, um, yeah, everybody was, everybody was, um, do you know why that area or the, the, the building or room or whatever was targeted, targeted? Uh, so we were going to talk with some upper brass of, uh, Peshmerga soldiers, which are Kurdistan, Kurd, Kurd military. And, um, you know, I don't know if the, if the guy knew that cause he pulled up in the back of his Hilux with just explosives all in the bed. And, um, I don't know. And I'm, I'm, maybe that's, that's, um, that's what they, they knew that that's where, um, some of those guys would be. I don't know that they knew that we would be there. I don't, I, to my knowledge, they didn't, but, um, uh, but anyway, and that was kind of another thing of too, of like showing up like a half hour after that happened. And granted there were, you know, the thing had already gone off and, and whatever, and they were securing the area, but going into that building and seeing the carnage and filming it and shooting it and just, um, you know, just again, that separation of the camera, just kind of being like, you know, this is, this is a part of the story and this is a part of my job. Not to say I was completely, you know, emotionless at all, but you're still, you're just like, I'm doing my job as much as I'd be doing my job at my desk. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I don't even know where I was going with this, but that was Iraq. And, uh, and I, wow, <laughs> my wife would say, yeah, yeah we're not doing those anymore. Uh, <laughs> Is that online anywhere to watch? Uh, God, man, I'd have to look. I remember I was uh, on a, I was on my way to Islamabad like a year after. And I was, um, maybe it was six months. Out. It wasn't, no. I'm sorry. It was like three months after. And I was, uh, had a layover in Kuwait and I was in the airport and the BBC was on and I started seeing the, the thing roll and saw the, I was like, Oh shit, oh, there it is. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, I'm not, cause it was just a news thing. I don't know. I could actually probably find it. If uh, you do manage to find it, I'll stick it in the links. Cause I, yeah. I have every confidence that people hearing all these different stories and film projects you've been involved in are going to want to watch them. So I'll stick all the links uh, in the description or on our webpage where our podcasts are, Absolutely. so people can easily go and find your um, find your footage and your website. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wow, a crazy thing. time. I mean, what a! I have to just. I want. We probably need to wrap up at some point, but I didn't really get a chance to dig into the Central African Republic and your hunting there. And this amazing conservation story that you wrote up in Modern Huntsman. So maybe we can we can dig into that before we we look to bring the interview to an end. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. I can. Uh, yeah. I'll just kind of dive in. I. Yeah. Like, like I. Uh, like I said, buddy of mine connected me to a guy named Eric Morav who had who had the hunting company and uh, and I showed up uh, again. It was it was a complete like hunting for photos, and it wasn't as much for their safari company as it was their um newly formed conservation company so um so that was the gig and again there was just fighting all over the country um 
and uh, but but where these guys were, there was conflict, but it wasn't necessarily the conflict that was going on uh, in Bangui in the capital and, and outer outer areas. Um, and this is kind of what it really first exposed me to, you know, the the, the war on conservation, you know, um, as as kind of like as I explained through the work with the last animals, it was similar in nature, but what was fascinating, so fascinating to me was once I landed, you know, like you, you do, you had these guys coming over to hunt. And as you and I know, it's kind of like this, you know, certain breed of person that can afford a, like a very expensive safari and being, and being out that far. I mean, it has to be expensive because it's just so difficult to work in and to have supply chains of getting everything out there for your clients. So you've get this, like these like top of their game, you know, guys who are also just adventure seekers and adrenaline junkies who are like, they had no, no concern that there was an ongoing civil war in the place they're about to go, about to go hunt. Um, so you have like that, then you've got the, um, you've got the conservation element. So you've got guys that are just purely biologists and scientists, um, really sharp guys that are also blew me away because they would just go out walking for like two months, just researching and collecting data. Um, and, uh, and then you had, um, you know, the anti-poaching element, because there was a lot of poaching going on. Um, and then you had uh, the LRA, the, that same rebel group that just kind of finds its way over wherever I am somehow. And <laughs> They're following you. Because LRA was, just for context people, that was, the head of the LRA was uh, Joseph Coney, wasn't it? Correct, or yeah. Or still is. Joseph, is yeah. it, Did they kill him? Or is uh, he still around? I, supposedly still around. It's one of those things, who knows, you know, his legend. Yeah. You know, it could be be what is alive, but as far as we know, I think he's still alive. But yes, yeah, those guys. And so with that, you had the you had American military advisors, British, um, you know, other you know former military personnel out advising the Uganda military who uh, were on deployment um, hunting the LRA because they originated from Uganda. So that's, that was why they were there. And so you've got all this in one little area. Um, and it was really, really, really fascinating from a filmmaking perspective. Cause you're like, look at this clash of worlds, you know, where everyone's there for a certain reason, there's crossover. And then there's, you know, you know, also people are mutually exclusive in their, in their pursuits. And so I, I was there just like, Hey man, I just want to hunt. Like that was re- like, you know, a warthog, you know, like I like I was there for pretty simple reasons, but once I showed up, I didn't realize what I was gonna what I was gonna walk into, um, and uh, and 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 being and that was my first time really in like a, a you know hunting camp with being around PHs and um, and uh, and seeing them and 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 that was that was really cool, um, and uh, and so I essentially part of it was like, I'm going to be out shooting and then I come back and then I'd get to kind of turn off and go spend a week, you know, with the, with the pH and the trackers and, and go hunt. It was actually pretty amazing. Like if, like if we didn't need money, like that, I could do that for, uh, forever. That was just, uh, like an experience of a lifetime. CAR is not a location. Many people will have on their list of, holiday destinations and i imagine from what i know i've actually never been there but from what i know and what i've read uh, of what other people have written and what you've written the poaching there in this very lawless country 
must make it very difficult for wildlife to survive. Would I be correct in thinking that the hunting operation there uh, formed a, a core of, of conservation and anti-poaching which allowed the wildlife that they were caretaking to, to thrive? Were they able to see this proliferation of wildlife in the time that they're there? And actually, are, are, are they still operating? Are they still able to operate there? Because that was a few, quite a few years ago now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was about six years ago when I was there. Um, so the answer to your question, and, and I don't know what like the current state is, but I know, excuse me, I know that, um, uh, that, uh, conservation, conservation wise speaking, um, it is flourishing now. So it, when I was there, it was like on this dip down, uh, in terms of wildlife. And, you know, um, I remember, I remember just there being just a lot of uh, stress within um, within uh, within Eric and his PHs because there was just not a lot seen because you're I mean th- and not not just elephants but I mean because they weren't actually um, hunting elephants at the time and that wasn't something a client could could book but uh, but just bushmeat in general as well um, um, Lord Derby Zealand and, and Bongo were kind of like that that's like really why you were there. Um, and uh, there was just so little of it at the time. And then 2015, I think it was 2015 or 2016, the hunting company had to shut down and, uh, and close their doors because it, there was just, there was not enough to, to sustain their, their operation. But the, um, the conservation side remained and then they partnered uh, with the African Parks Network, who's a large, very large wildlife in Jew, out of, uh, out of Johannesburg. And, uh, and over like two or so years beyond that, all of a sudden population started thriving and, and that was, and that you have to completely attribute that to the hunting, um, that created that base and that foundation that would not have been there because it would have been, even in just my, I was there, what, two months, two month experience, know for a fact that the wildlife that, that, uh, that existed there would not exist there now because you yeah, you had the rebel thing and the ivory and all that stuff But you had, a you know, we're so close to the Sudan border. You had these pastoralists, ca- um, herding their cattles from, from Sudan down and through that region, the CAR, because it's so fertile and it's so biodiverse. It's, um, like beautiful, it's perfect gra- grazing grounds and, and a very, you know, dry Sudan and a Sudan that's under heavy conflict, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, they're going to just move where, where, you know, where, um, where you can, um, graze your cattle. And the, and then again, same thing, it's just survival. It's like, well, while they're there, they're going to kill bush meat, take it to the market, use it. I mean, it's just like, it's, you can't, you can't really damn them for it, but at the same time, it's, it's not going to sustain, sustain the wildlife. And so you had to create, you know, um, you had to create a solution and the hunting, um, and the hunting did, but it, it, things just got so bad that I think the hunting was like, let's pour all our efforts back into the conservation side, um, and shut doors on hunting. But, um, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. And now, and now as far as I last heard, like they're, they're as far as I know, thriving and, and things are much different in that part of CAR, which is great. Um, and, and that kind of what allowed me to, you know, feel confident in the story of hunting because, you know, it, at the time, especially was so kind of taboo to talk about hunting and not being labeled as, you know, I don't know, just, uh, backwoods or privileged or, you know, or uncaring of the environment when it was actually the opposite. 
Um, and, and that company and the CAR was such a great, um, a great way to help tell that story. No, I, I was just about to say, thank you very much for coming on, blah, blah, blah. But I just realized there was one other thing that I wanted to touch on yeah. because you made a film with Tito West, who I've been speaking to a lot in the, in, in, over the last couple of weeks on yeah. various things to do with modern huntsman and photography. And he's been guiding me through this new experience that I, that I'm having of taking stills on film because I, I missed film when I started taking pictures because it was all digital. Uh, but you worked on a very beautiful, poetic, short film uh, in Africa with him. Uh, tell me about that because the link to it, I know it's on your website, but it's also on the Modern Huntsman website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, just to yeah, give you kind of a brief thing on it. I mean, Tito and I kind of like out, of, again, out of this CAR kind of, overview kind of conversation about conservation and hunting and where, where do these two worlds meet? Um, which we all knew where they met and, and how they are symbiotic and how, um, you know, to someone who didn't understand thought that hunting was the antithesis of conservation. So we're like, how do we, how do we talk about that? But we didn't want to talk about it in the sense of, you know, let's make a, either a doc or, um, you know, something in the journalistic world about it. Cause it, so much of that had been done and, Tito had done stuff in, uh, in, uh, God, well, I'm losing the word, um, in Southern Africa. I can't, I'm, I think, I think Namibia actually, um, on, on conservation and, uh, and I, of course, in CAR and the last animals We're like, what can we do different? We didn't really want to speak about that, but we really wanted to speak more about, you know, what is inside man or woman, um, to hunt, you know, what, why, you know, why, why is that, why is that there? You can go into, evolutional aspects of that but but now you know why why do i get so excited to go bow hunt for whitetail in the fall in texas like what what in me you know um lights that fire and so so i wrote um kind of what would have been of you know a letter from a father to a son kind of speaking into that idea and then tito and i were able to get everything together and that was really all tito being able to get all the resources and everything we needed to make the film um and uh we went to south africa and, and both directed it and um and that was yeah the hunter is what we just called it beautiful i will direct people uh towards where they can watch that but ryan it's been it's been truly one of the, my, this has truly been one of my most favorite conversations I've had in recent months on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so glad that we managed to find the, uh, find the time to do this. And mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to at some point when eventually we're allowed out of our houses yes. uh, to meet you in person. Yes. And I, maybe even better than that, meet you in person in the field in Africa somewhere that because be- uh, I think we have more than one, one or two things in common here. Yeah, no, we, uh, we absolutely need to be, be out there and let's, let's find a project and work on it because I'd, I'd absolutely love that. I, yeah, yeah, I, I loved it and I admire your work so much. Thankful for, uh, <laughs> for, kind. for Tyler Sharp, who's been just like, the <laughs> kind of like connecting. he's, he's like this global connector, Tyler. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm not to get on a tangent. I met Tyler in 08 and, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been so cool to see him thrive with modern huntsman and everything else in his career. But, uh, but then, and then equally and selfishly just the people he's connected me with and you're one of those. And, uh, so yeah, I've been loving your work from afar and we'll make it happen. 
Cool. Well, Ryan, uh, stay well, stay safe with your family. Uh, goodbye until we, we, we get out of quarantine. All right. Yeah. And uh, enjoy the sunny weather over there. Wow, what a conversation. Join me again in a week's time when I am bringing you our deep dive into the science of conservation with an Into the Wilderness Shorts episode and two weeks time where we have another long form and we take a walk into the wilderness. Mm-hmm.